0: Hello and welcome to The Nature Between Us, a podcast for all your eco-inquiries and musings. My name is Tessa. I'm an Aussie actress, voiceover artist and environmental master's student on a mission to demystify the big environmental issues of our time. Join me on my quest to find solutions and positivity from the wide variety of people working towards a more sustainable future. This podcast is recorded and produced on Bidjigal and Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is episode number 10 and the final chapter of season one of The Nature Between Us. He can't see it, but a tear is slowly dripping down my face. Until I remember, I'm making a season two. Yay! I am going to take a short break, because I need it, to recoup and plan. And an even better season is going to be coming right up in, I don't know, I won't put a number, but sometime. Okay, back to today's episode, which is all about creating art in the climate era. And more specifically, performance art or theatre. And as you know, I'm an actress, so this topic sits pretty close to my heart. I have a real soft spot for theatre and the raw human connection it can provoke. So it got me thinking, could it be the answer to climate anxiety? or even just science communication, or a subtle push for change? Today's guest, David Finnegan, is the perfect person to answer these questions. He is a writer and a theater maker who works in collaboration with Earth scientists to produce engaging performances about climate and global change. Think science communication mashed up with your favorite rom-com or drama. His plays include Kill Climate Deniers, You're Safe Till 2024, and 44 Sex Acts in One Week which I had tickets to, but unfortunately it got cancelled because of COVID. But keep your eyes out. I think it's coming back on uh, at Belvoir very soon. Uh, outside of being a playwright, he is also a member of a number of theatre ensembles. There's Boho in Oz, which creates interactive science theatre performances for festivals, conferences and schools. And then similar international groups, such as Kony in the UK, and the Sipat Lawan Ensemble in the Philippines. Strangely, I came across David not in a theater, but he was mentioned in Rebecca Huntley's book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. Now, if you've tuned into episode six, you know all about Rebecca and her work and the power of emotions with engagement. And this episode is in some ways an extension of that conversation. David and I chat about his plays, obviously, and how he translates scientific research for the stage, how he uses humour, why he was wrong about the fires, the power of theatre, and how we're crossing planetary boundaries. Enjoy! How are you doing, crawling from London?
1: I'm good, I'm good, having a... Um A pretty all right week. Just finished uh, a bunch of the paid work that I have for the year. So now I'm actually in just writing mode, which is lovely.
0: I should note that this was recorded in December of last year. So later on when we chat about the fires as if they were in the current year, please don't get confused. We're just speaking from the past. So you grew up in Canberra Mm -hmm. and your dad was a scientist, right?
1: Yeah. So I'm not a scientist. I'm very much a layman. I have no qualifications really at all. Um, but I started making theatre probably the very early 2000s with my friends. We started just making plays in the kind of little Canberra indie scene. And then probably about the mid 2000s, we we thought we would like to start making work about, about science. And really it was about science probably more than the environment was the focus. Um, okay. We... I think we just felt like we were making, we, we were making shows about ourselves and about our lives, and it was it wasn't that interesting even to us. And we're like, we want to <laughs> we want to kind of make work that forces us to learn something. Um, and so we started making a show. We made a show about game theory, about the prisoner's dilemma. Um, What's that? So the prisoner's dilemma is a very famous thought experiment from back in the the forties. Essentially, the study of what's the right thing to do in a situation where the right thing to do depends on what someone else does and gradually over time um in the 70s and then through until until more recently it became this this topic about okay well how does cooperation evolve and they realized that what they were missing in this um analogy was the fact that we don't just have one encounter with someone else where we choose to be nice or to screw them over we have lots of encounters. We might see them in the future. And uh, over time, if you keep encountering someone repeatedly, then you mm. can build up to be this this cooperation. Um, mm. Anyway, the, the Prisoner's Dilemma Thought Experiment is like this kind of classic game theory uh, way of thinking through real world problems. It's also a kind of, it comes up a lot in, in climate policy because mm. um, a Prisoner's Dilemma, if you've got a group of people playing this cooperate or defect thing, it's also a case of, should we pollute or should we bear the cost of, say, a carbon tax? You know, the the right thing to do is for everyone to cooperate. We all benefit. But then if if everyone's cooperating, then we benefit even more if we just defect and and kind of continue to do business as usual while everyone else is, you know, making the atmosphere cleaner. Mm. So it becomes this, it's, it's sort of still used today as a way of kind of thinking through some of the problems around cooperation.
0: Mm. And did you say so, that you you wrote a play about this? Was that one of yes. your first plays?
1: Yeah, well, the first play that kind of grappled with, with science in this way.
0: Right. Um, okay, cool. And that
1: put us... So we made this work. We were kind of... My my group, Boho, were collaborating with CSIRO scientists and, and primarily people who were working in sustainability and ecology in that space. So, yeah, mm. we began... I guess, you know, our, our focus probably my focus more broadly is is usually on the science on science and working with scientists rather than necessarily the environment and it right. happens that a lot of the a lot of the science that i'm most fascinated by kind of falls under the broad category of sustainability science or climate science
0: ah okay i understand i'm curious in that case what your relationship with the environment is <laughs> is it a loving relationship? relationship do you have is it a difficult
1: <laughs> it's cordial look at you know we, we get on um, yeah
0: so you're not a diehard hippie you're a too, you're a well, science guy
1: that's you know if I have to kind of if I have to kind of drill it down because I think the environment's too big right like it's too big a topic and this is probably the thing that's tricky for for me as someone who writes about you know I get I get put in the the bracket of being I write I'm a, I write about climate I write about the environment from my yeah. perspective we are all writing about the environment we're all writing about the climate it's the single biggest thing in our in our century um there's no one who's not writing about the climate in some way or shape or form I think if I kind of for me what I'm what I'm usually focused on is the researchers and the research and that little bit of the puzzle mm-hmm. but of course, The way I've been thinking of it for, I don't know how long, but it's, it feels to me more like we're in a climate is a, it's an era rather than a subject. Like we're living in the climate era at this moment where, you know, our, our, our world, our society, our, our interactions are being shaped by a changing atmosphere, oceans, um, biosphere, everything that we talk about, everything that we do is influenced and affected by the climate and the, the fact that it's changing and that we've changed it in ways we didn't intend to. So it's impossible to not talk about it. And any piece of work, any piece of art can be read through that lens in the way that anything, you know, any, any piece of literature written in in England in the 19th century can be read through the lens of the industrial revolution and the, the ways that the world was changing there. If you look back on work of the 2010s and 2020s in a hundred years time, everything that's being produced right now they'll be looking at it thinking oh that's that was the the early years of the climate era um so that's an early climate work whether or not it says climate explicitly in the in the title of the play so yeah, yeah i feel like i feel like the, the the environment is well it's everything right so you kind of can't you kind of can't grapple with it as a topic and i i think the little bit that i look at is is typically the science and research side of things
0: yeah no that's really interesting and it's it's nice to hear your response to kind of why, what's driving you to do this and what part of it you're interested in because that's quite a different answer to what many people say. Many people are like, oh, I, I, I grew up swimming, which, you know, in the beach, kind of like my thing. Or like <laughs> I love surfing, I love hiking and like nature gives us so much goodness and I want to protect that. And, yeah, it's really it's really curious and awesome to hear like a totally different kind of answer to that very like what is a very generic question so well,
1: what's what's your answer is it is it that kind of you want to protect nature sort of response
0: yeah I think it's that and I think it's like it it just actually like bugs me that people <laughs> just like destroy it I'm like why yeah. just don't, like you don't <laughs> have to it's so beautiful like I I mean I I I'm gonna sound like a like a just a, a fluffy head but I love, I love trees. I'm looking at a tree right now and I have love heart eyes. Like I think they're beautiful and they're calming and there's so many good qualities like that selfishly I love about nature. And I think, um, I think also like in my studies, I've learned that there are solutions. And so for me, it's also like, I know that this isn't the only way that we can be doing things. And then it makes you realize, oh, it's just coming back to like corporate greed and, and capitalism and i don't want to get too political but like you know that kind of stuff and i'm like oh that's just annoying
1: because it's so frustrating isn't it that all the technologies are there all the solutions are there it's it's literally there's there's a, a strata of people standing in the way of progress yeah that are actively trying to prevent us solving the problem and yeah. we're it not for them like you know there's there's enough for everyone <laughs> there's enough for everyone on the planet um I
0: know.
1: but also you know there's not enough for everyone if we continue to have billionaires like we can't yeah. have a planet where everyone has enough and the, there's enough of the biosphere to sustain us and also have corporate greed. That's the thing we can't have. Yeah. It just, it's, um it is incredibly frustrating. You're right. That's a good term yeah. for it.
0: So, okay. So you, you got into, so you were probably an actor to start with or an actor and a writer.
1: Uh, I was a very bad actor. I was sort of, I would write, uh, it was that case of, you know, when you start out in the indie space, you kind of write, direct, produce, to yeah. act um, because no one else is around. So I, I had a bit of a, I, I acted enough to learn that there are better people than me to do the acting. Um, but I still will perform my own stuff and tell as a storyteller, more as a kind of presenter than a, than a kind of actor. Um, and the Canberra scene at that time was this lovely kind of, a really like self-sustained, very kind of pretty isolated artistic community, but very like supportive. So all of the kind of aesthetic that I have and the kind of collaborators and, and, approach I have to art making kind of came from that from that world and then gradually spread out over the last sort of 15 years. BOHO, the group that I I kind of formed with my with my friends in the two thousand, Jack Lloyd, McBailey, and David Shaw, we did lots of stuff in collaboration with scientists, CSIRO scientists and universities. We ended up at the um, University College London making a, a show about climate modelling in 2012, I think this piece that became best festival ever which was a sort of interactive game performance about system science complexity about resilience and that work we could we took that sort of practice on to collaborations with the Stockholm Resilience Center and with the Earth Observatory Singapore lots of research institutions where we'd be kind of um in residence at the research institution and making these shows where we'd be kind of talking with scientists every day and and taking their research and, and putting it into some sort of form, going back to those scientists and saying, you know, how's this? Does this feel like we've gotten close to what you're talking about? And um and they would say yes or no. And we kind of build these works um very collaboratively with the researchers.
0: Mm. So that's
1: the kind of, I guess, you know, I don't know if there is a if there's a sort of Canberra resonance to that, but it was <laughs> it, like it's very much art that lives inside and and kind of within research. And often that work, you know, Boho still never really gets like we do a few shows in theatres here and there, but it's not really a theatre sort of context for that Oh,
0: work. okay. What it, kind of um, context is that?
1: It's the stuff for boardrooms and classrooms and meeting rooms. It's usually interactive, so it kind of caps out at maybe 30 people at a time. Um, and you cannot you can't do a show, a theatre show, for 30 people at a time. The, the numbers don't work um, financially for venues. Mm. So we always build it. We, but we've done, you know, we've done shows in venues, but it doesn't necessarily click within a, in an arts context but in a kind of research context or in a, a context where we're sort of talking to businesses or talking to policymakers talking to government then then it starts to land that's when it kind of feels really rich mm. so that's a strand of the practice which kind of has taken me well away from the arts in some ways um yeah. which is really interesting has been a really fascinating kind of thread to follow
0: yeah I can imagine going into a boardroom and doing a kind of interactive presentation or a performance with people who are making policy decisions would be it would feel quite powerful. You're like, oh, this this could create some actual change.
1: That was the idea, right? Like that was what we wanted. We kind of thought we could go into I mean we were making shows about climate that maybe yeah, 10, 15 years ago and feeling like, all right, we're preaching to the choir.
0: Um, Oh my gosh. I feel like that that, every day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of echo chamber preaching to the choir thing was very two thousands. I mean, you know, it probably still gets put about now, but it very much at the time we were making it. God, I, I, all the time we were having this, like, we have to stop preaching to the choir. We have to reach across the aisle. And um, I don't know, maybe back in the two thousands, there was a slightly, we had a slightly different understanding of what was driving climate denial and what was driving the kind of lack of progress. Like now, I think it's really easy to see, particularly in Australia, that there are very specific groups, very specific forces who are preventing change. At the time, I think the kind of common understanding, at least with the scientists that we were chatting with, was that people just weren't, they didn't really understand. It wasn't that they, it wasn't that it was sort of an active, I mean, there were clearly like, you know, active deniers and and forces that were preventing change at a policy level. But the idea was, if we can just communicate the science clearly enough to enough people outside our bubble, then change is possible. So we had this notion that we could kind of take this work and take it into to say the room with the like a mining company or a um or a, a yeah, corporate business or government policymakers, government departments, and, and very gently introduce them to these topics and have these conversations with them. So we very carefully shaped these shows. They didn't include the word climate change. They talked about um, they talked about the environment, they talked about sustainability, but they didn't use words like greenhouse gases that we knew would trigger, you know, certain oh, kind of okay. people to be like absolutely disengaged straight away. Yeah,
0: like ding ding ding. Oh no, I'm out of here. <laughs>
1: exactly. And we had these great, we had these great conversations. We got into these really interesting spaces in in Australia, in the UK, in Sweden, in, in Asia, in Shanghai. We um we had really great meetings with really interesting people and we presented these shows and and the conversations afterwards were fascinating. Like they're, you know, mining companies in Australia are super interesting. They're, you know, often really intelligent, sensitive people who have a great capacity to understand they have really deep investment with the land that they're working on. You know, they're not bad people, but (laughs) at the same time, by the end of this, I mean, we still do this work. We still work in this space, but I think our, our, our sort of focus has shifted because it's really clear became we we kind of had to question at a point like are we actually getting in the room and changing these people's minds or even engaging with them or are they kind of co-opting us and using us to sort of appear more
0: mm. open and
1: and then in fact they are like who's actually using who here and at the same time it, like I think we and maybe a lot of people let go of this idea that actually what we need is to engage with people across the aisle and, and kind of really, you know, t- stop preaching to the choir because, you know, what, what we now know as of 2020 is that um, we have a, a huge majority of us in Australia of people that want climate action and we still can't have it. <laughs> we have 70% of people say they want stronger action on climate change and hasn't made an absolute any difference to our the government and policy. The roadblocks are not people's understanding.
0: Mm. There, are,
1: there are other kind of um, barriers to getting change and they're not going to come about by politely engaging one at a time people on the other side of the aisle um, or at least that's where I stand now so
0: yeah I totally agree you just made me think of something I, I saw that you had written an essay recently that was titled I was wrong about the fires I feel like that would fit in nicely to where we're where we're at right now with our conversation can you elaborate on on that and and why you thought you were wrong <laughs>
1: yeah i mean so <laughs> my friend anna from the stockholm resilience center many years ago sort of said uh, she worked a lot with artists the the stockholm resilience center often would engage artists to do work with them on climate and she was like whenever we brought new artists in um there would always be this process that people go through that when whenever people kind of really first get to grips with climate change there's a sort of there's three phases they go through phase one is they get really angry and um and agitated they want to make it they, they kind of realize the scale of the problem and how how serious it is and how urgent it is and they're like we have to do something i want to we have to make a change right now and then phase two is they kind of get deeper into it and they realize how how serious things are and how fucked we are and how how bad things are going to get um she's so like there's this kind of nihilistic phase where people go through where they're kind of like um they almost want things to get as bad as they can get just so that You know, politicians and business people have to admit that the problem is real. Um, And maybe also there's like some terrible part of us that's like, oh, it'd be great just to see it all, you know, burn down. Um, She's like, on the other side of the kind of nihilistic phase, you have this despair and this real kind of depression, and people just are like, what's the point? Nothing's, it's not making a difference. Nothing's changing. She's like, once you kind of get through all three phases and on the other side, then people, start to grapple with it constructively. That's she's just like I have to walk people through all three phases. If that's true or not, I'm not sure. I feel like, um, for me, I feel like you kind of move, I move through all three phases at different times and I'm on my own weird journey, kind of ping-ponging between the three. But probably in my more nihilistic moments, I thought in the last few years, you know, looking at the horror, looking at the horrors that are kind of lying in wait for Australia and, you know, I'm from a Ngunnawal country in the Southeast, um, we're facing drought and heat waves in the next few decades in a pretty serious way and fires as a consequence of that. And I thought at least if we had a really severe, undeniably climate driven crisis, at least that would get rid of, at least that would remove the kind of pillar of the denial in action, which is that, you know, these, these problems aren't real and it's not going to affect us. When mm. we really started to see the kind of colossal damage that climate impacts are going to cause us, we would at least acknowledge the problem. We might not begin to address the solutions that we need at the speed we need, but at least that would um, shift that dial and we could st- at least stop having that stupid conversation. Mm. And then this year happened and it was exactly the horror that, you know, we've been terrified of for decades and it didn't shift the dial at all. You know, I, there was, it felt like there was a, a couple of weeks of incendiary fury. Scott Morrison watching fireworks at the lodge on New Year's Eve while people on the south coast are kind of hiding on the beaches um, from the fires and then it passed and um, the kind of you know the news corp engine got into gear and and the culture war machine started up again as it does and and it doesn't i don't think it changed anyone's mind that i don't think i don't think that it, it, it sort of shifted the dial for anyone really who wasn't convinced that climate change was a threat no one no one kind of came on board and was like oh yeah i acknowledge it and that was kind of confronting because it was a, a, I could maybe a, an article of faith for me that at very least when the disasters really began to hit, we'd all be on the same page and we'd all be kind of, you know, in the struggle together. And now it, it seems to me more likely that actually we could get, that there's no disaster that could happen that's bad enough that'll actually really kind of change people's minds on that front. It won't be the disasters that change people's mind. It'll be other things. People's minds will change. There's no doubt in my mind that, you know we're in the last few years of climate denial in the way that we've known it so far mm. but it won't be it, i'd hoped that the the silver lining from a crisis like this would be that we just be done with that with that denial
0: do you think that's just human like our human brains trying to protect us from like deep depression or anxiety or you know that like that ability to so quickly forget about mm. the trauma that was a year ago and I mean, they, the real inquiry into the fires and that came out saying 100% was caused by climate change. I, um, some, I mean,
1: it's a it's a great report and a shout out to all the people who put that together. It's it's clear, it's readable, it's visceral um, and yeah, not a shadow of a doubt as to yeah, what was driving me home.
0: But that came out and that, I mean, I also felt like that even got swept under the rug really quickly because it came mm-hmm. out six months later and there's been a lot going on and it does feel like what was such a, pressing issue a year ago in Australia because it's about it exactly a year ago now exactly. has kind of just like completely been forgotten
1: um it's crazy isn't it I mean there's the the thing that I, I do feel like is is part of it but only part of it like that I mean I don't I don't know is the bigger answer but it seems to me that if the problem was something that played in the favor of say the government and the media engine the the kind of Murdoch press we'd be hearing about it non-stop it would become a part of the Australian psyche in the way that you know the Gallipoli myth became a part of the Australian psyche. It was convenient to, to Billy Hughes at the time and, and to the um, the government at the time to make that uh, horrific atrocity and the disaster into a part of the Australian culture. And it is extremely inconvenient for the government at this time to acknowledge the scale and scope of the horrors of what happened a year ago. And so they've just done everything they can to kind of remove it from or just ignore it, just delight it. And mm. um, I think that's, I mean, that's, disorienting right it's left me dizzy you know we have this we have this crisis and this trauma and um and yet the kind of <laughs> the overarching cultural narrative is we just move on we just ignore it. it's not it wasn't that bad it's certainly not convenient for the coalition government to acknowledge how bad it was and only is going to bring light to how how badly they fucked it up mm. um I'd sort of been feeling a bit of that in the UK uh with COVID the UK has completely fumbled the response here disastrously. I think we're, we're more than 60,000 people dead um, and we're, we're just coming out of our second lockdown. We're very likely to go into a third lockdown very soon. Um, but, you know, we came out of second lockdown with I think 20,000 new cases every day. And whoa. Um, yeah. So that's the numbers at which they were like, yep, we're good to leave the mm. um. And the weird thing is that, you know, I've kind of been talking with friends in Australia who are so sensitive to COVID, so aware of COVID, so conscious of it. And over here, it's just not it's not a thing like you mm. know, the, it's uh, the, the sense is that the government isn't going to it's not, you know, it's not going to address it at the level that it needs to be addressed. They don't have the political will or the polit- political capital. Mm. And so what can you do other than just kind of ignore it? And mm. it feels a little bit like that with the fires and, and climate in Australia. Yeah. But that's only part of it, and that's probably not even the main part. I don't know. What do you think? why why did we
0: why did we let know. go of it? I didn't let go of it. i've <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot. But I think it's you know I, I do think there's something to do with human behavior and and trauma, and you can't engage with something that's so that you feel so powerless against for too long. Like you get exhaustion, like adrenal exhaustion. And that's, I think, what a lot of people felt. And it was compounded by the next crisis and the next crisis. And I think it just kind of like, you know, I think people want to have peaceful lives and fair enough. I want to have a peaceful life. Like you want to have a peaceful existence and you don't want to be constantly anxious and stressed and angry and frustrated and dealing with, an issue that you really shouldn't have to be dealing with because it's a, it's a, it was created by a system that you have no control over really. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think that's probably why it's been forgotten.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And then it's true. Like we are, you know, we, when you sort of sit with the, this big kind of issue in this way for too long, it does make you feel powerless and it makes you feel helpless. And it's distressing and anxiety inducing. Mm. Um, There's always the, like, there's that kind of, you know, continual question. I'm sure you get this a lot. I get it all the time when in interviews, people are like the the two questions that I get constantly, um, (laughs) neither of which I can answer, but, but always come up. is like, how does your work or like, how does your work help the, like help us with climate? It's like, what's the, you're an artist. How does your art kind of help us solve the problem? It's that first kind of very utilitarian question. And the second one is where's the hope or where's the optimism? I don't have good answers for either of them because no one does, but I certainly (laughs) think the for me, the thing that has been has provided more kind of optimism or positivity is kind of ignoring that big picture stuff or you know, being aware of it, but managing how much you take in and then finding something very small and concrete in front of you to tackle, preferably with other people. That has been, you know. 100%. 100% yeah and then so you can important. kind of see some change you can see some positivity you can see some action but I think yeah if you focus too much on these things that we're powerless against it can become very dispiriting very quickly mm. and then you get into the nihilism
0: in your plays you, it seems like you use a lot of humor um one of them is titled kill climate deniers and the next one is you're safe till 2024 but they're just the two I've got jotted down in front of me that's is that a tactic to use to use humor as a way to kind of like hey this can be fun like I, I can engage you and make you laugh
1: uh I mean there's no tactics it's, it's funny because I sort of I, I shared all this stuff about how like I, Boho and I had this grand plan that we would kind of tackle um we would try and change people's minds by targeting people in boardrooms and making these works that and. Et cetera, et cetera, and I really have let that go. I've let all of that sort of tactical stuff go. I don't have a plan. I don't have a strategy. What I do is write about things that fascinate me and write in a way that I enjoy writing. And that usually involves terrible comedy. I write a lot of genre stuff. So I write Kill Climate Deniers as an action film. I feel like a lot of what I write are these sort of hack job versions of Hollywood B-movies because that's what I enjoy. That's what I watch. Um, I don't tend to watch sophisticated dramas or or kind of beautiful narrative masterpieces I, I read trash and I write trash uh, and it happens that the, the trash that I write often has ecology or system science or sustainability science embedded in it because that's what I'm fascinated by and obsessed with it's it's less tactics it's more obsession
0: no but I think that's clever in a way because it's not you know it it's Kill climate deniers, like probably uh, I'm going to say someone who is a climate denier would not go and see that play. But it sounds like it's kind of you're you're weaving in these, like, you know, all of the things about ecology and about um, like planetary changing, like changes and all of that kind of stuff into something that is like really easily absorbable and fun and engaging. And I think that's really clever cross-section of the arts and the sciences.
1: Thank you. I think that was probably not clever in some ways. That title <laughs> that title caused me some problems. That piece, in fact, was was almost against my will thinking I have to write about climate because for years I've been writing about the Anthropocene, global change, all these big, you know, all of the big planetary changes. As you know, climate change is just one of the huge changes. It's probably not even the most concerning one. So um, thinking about what's really, you know, what are really kind of frightening issues for us um
0: what what is the more concerning one
1: i'd say the rate of biodiversity loss the rate of extinctions
0: oh right okay i thought you were gonna yeah. say something about a different planet somewhere like, wait <laughs> yeah.
1: it's the aliens coming yeah to yeah, it, yeah.
0: Okay. i was like okay um, good to chat bye <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: we save it till half an hour in before we kind of <laughs> drop that one um no it's the i mean what are the the, the kind of planetary boundaries that we've crossed um, the three would be climate change and the nitrogen phosphorus cycle, and which is kind of big plankton blooms in the ocean, dead zones in the ocean, and the rate of biodiversity loss. And the rate of biodiversity loss is the one that's absolutely terrifying and probably you know if we think about our uh, no matter how badly no matter how much greenhouse gas we put in the atmosphere probably the natural the kind of rock weathering cycle will bring that temperature back down within a hundred thousand years or so by half in half a million years the the temperature will have returned to normal assuming that the usual processes apply but the species that go extinct are like extinct forever and the, the kind of impact on the, ecos- the biosphere, that's you know, the, what we lose and what we've lost just this year, you know, the species of tapir or whatever, the, the kind of rhinos that we lose, they're never coming back. Nothing is going to bring them back. And that's, you know, um, not only a kind of moral and ethical kind of, uh, horrible legacy, but also, um, we're kind of pulling out, we're like, is it, descri- someone described it as like, we're, we're kind of, um, pulling the, unscrewing the screws from the aeroplane while we're in flight, like they're kind of popping out of the, we don't know if we can survive in a, in an ecology, which is this denudative species. Mm. So there's lots that you can kind of talk about in, in terms of big planetary changes that isn't climate related. And for years I sort of avoided talking about the climate because uh, it's so polarized and it's been dominated by this, uh, really banal dry culture wars these just terrible pundits and so i i thought we, there's so many other things we could talk about that are rich and important around the, and the, and and exciting and and illuminating about the world we live in and the changes that we're going through without mentioning climate change those two words and then probably by well, by 2013 or so i think i just was sick of it because all of the scientists that I've been working with for decades and going right back to, you know, growing up with seeing my dad go through this back in the late eighties and early nineties and held his colleagues. These scientists had just done nothing but their, their work. And then by accident, without intending to, had managed to unsurface this um extraordinary issue that we were causing. And because they were in one of those rare cases in history where knowledge diverges from power, what they were telling was extremely um upsetting for the, the sort of, Status quo powers, and it'd been, it's been this horrific case of trying to kill the messenger for for many decades. It's so on, it's like it's so unfair and so unasked for. And the, the scientists who get into climate change, maybe less so now because it's clear what you're getting into. But back in the day, the scientists who got into climate change didn't ask for this. They didn't ask to be kind of punished and attacked and have their kind of their reputations dragged through the mud. And so it felt like a, when it came to kill cool Climate Deniers, it was a piece of being like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to write about this now. I feel like I'm going to, I've sort of, <laughs> I've had it up to here and I'm going to mm. say something about it. But now, now we're in the 2020s and it feels like that was a very 2010s work, you know, even though it was only on in a couple of years ago, it premiered and it's had like, I think 10 productions in that time, it was going to have another six. I mm. really feel like we're in a different era now, just, you know, the lines drawn at if we, if you did it again now it would be as a period piece
0: and yeah. so what's your so at the moment you're working on a play that I mentioned already you're safe till 2024 what's what's that one about
1: so that's a series of pieces so it's about it's it's six shows um so I'm making a new show every year uh with Ruben my musician colleague we're making a new show every year until 2024 um so we started last year uh we made a show which was just called you're safe till 2024 and it was about I interviewed about 30 different scientists and asked each of them, what's the biggest change happening in the world today? And, um, and they, they told me all these incredible stories about, um, the great acceleration what's happened to chickens over the last 70 years about, um, plastic pollution and, and kind of the, the strange fact that, you know, each of us here and now you and I, as we're talking, are more full of plastic, than any oh. human being in any generation before us in the history of the planet. I
0: don't want to um, think about that. It's terrifying.
1: It's this strange thing. Anyway, it was a, it was a really fascinating set of conversations. And um yeah, just that moment and it was about it was about how we process the how we process the crisis too. So, it was all about what is it? What's the sort of yeah, psychological journey that we all go through. Um what does it feel like to be, you know, you and I right now breathing air that has more parts per million carbon dioxide than any any human before us in in human history like we're in it right now this is what it this is what it feels like i feel like for many years i had this sensation of like climate change is coming climate's on its way the, the crisis is approaching and of course now it's really clear that we're in it and and also that we've been in it for a long time we've been in it since since before we were born the crisis kind of started long before we were born it will continue long after we we're, we're dead like we're in we were born in the crisis and crisis is all we know so what will it feel like what will it feel like to be in climate change this is what it feels like and and how do you kind of process that how do you kind of unpack that
0: so each each year you're going to make a play kind of surrounding those concepts and those notions
1: yeah so that first year was about that kind of the the psychological kind of side of it and then the second year this year was is about deep history so What are the big turning points in human history over the last sort of seventy-five thousand years or so? How did we get here to this moment? And and, um, as I was writing that play, I I set out to write that play over the New Year's last year, um, the sort of seventy-five thousand-year history of humanity, told in an hour, um, seven big turning points that that we made that led us to now. And while I was writing it, um, of course, the fires were unfolding. And so mm. I ended up writing it partly about uh, about deep history and partly about my friends and family who were evacuating mm. down the south coast. Um, mm. it's kind of tracking their their progress over about seventy five hours as they as they fled the fires. Wow! Um, and then next year, I think the plan is to look at deep futures um, and write about what's coming in the next two hundred years for us and what is wow. that? How do we? Yeah. How do we process that and how do we kind of live with this awareness of the future that we haven't had maybe in the past so each year a different show looking at a different aspect and then in 2024 it all builds up to a an eight hour spectacular um some sort of massive theatrical extravaganza which will be yeah eight hours long. And, and I Not don't know what that miss. One look like. Yeah. God knows. I've never made an eight hour show. I've got no money. I've got no support. So we'll see how it happens. It'll
0: be, like. <laughs> it'll be like the movie marathons. I used to go to when I was 13, three films in yeah. a row.
1: <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm picturing it being along the lines of the Harry Potter show, which I think is six and a half hours. Oh, um, nice.
0: Yeah. I like it. So, well, obviously you don't tend to shy away from like awkward or uncomfortable content. I'm curious how audiences tend to react to your plays have you sat in the audience much you must have
1: <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> um so it's funny the um it depends on how they're framed and so i've got a show that happening in uh, in at belvoir is it this week or next week i think um it's
0: next week i was trying to get tickets today oh great um yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah so that is a show that's about climate it's about ecology uh it's called 44 sex acts in one week and it's about Uh, it's a rom-com it's my my terrible kind of Matthew McConaughey Kate Hudson-esque rom-com but it's about rewilding and it's about ecology and it's about deep time and consequences but beautifully because it's a rom-com it's been framed and sold as a rom-com which is really nice and so there's a lovely thing where audiences come they'll come to a work like that and an audience is really open to a big conversation I think every audience that I've ever seen come to the theater wants to be thinking and talking about big things but they also want to come for pleasure or at least i want to come i i don't go to the theater just to be sort of given a full on haranguing about the state of the world i i come for for pleasure and for joy so a lot of the time if the work when the work that i'm doing gets framed or sold as it's a show about the climate then what I, I will tend to get audience members who come kind of dragging their feet a bit, come, they come because they think they should come. They come because they think it's, it's important. It's, it's worthwhile. It's worthy. And, and they're, they're there to be told how shit things are and, and to be told how depressing it is. And that's always, that's a hard audience to perform to. <laughs> so, and then, and there's audience and there's parts of that audience who are very like, they have a political agenda and they want you to share that political agenda. And um Sometimes mm. they resonate, sometimes what you do resonates with them, sometimes it doesn't. So, I've had certainly had people come to Kill Climate Deniers or to You're Safe Till 2024 who come out afterwards and they're like, You didn't do it right because what you needed to say was this. And what we need, uh. people need to hear this, um, which is usually, I think, code for I needed to hear this.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. So,
1: that audience is tricky, um, but <laughs> bless them. <laughs> but then there's the, so, but that, you know, I, I tend to think that what I'm writing is is some um, art that's, I guess, you know, interested in the world, but isn't kind of political in that way. The best audiences that I've had, the ones I'm really happy about are the ones where people come for a fun night out, for a kind of music, song and dance, um, for something playful and silly, and there happens to be a deeper thread to it.
0: Uh, it's interesting because I feel like we hear a lot about, like, the power of storytelling And I think I read another one of your opinion pieces, maybe it was during your nihilistic phase, but you made a comment (laughs) that not even the arts will create change, like not even the arts, you know, you felt quite demoralised. And I guess I just wanted to get like a little bit more of an elaboration on that, because I kind of feel like if we give up on the arts, like we're giving up on everything because the power of storytelling and the power of connecting, and that's my favorite thing about theatre, and why I was so excited to come across you and your work. Because I wish there was more plays about the well, about deep ecology and future, you know, thinking, and that's woven in in a fun and engaging way. But yeah, do you do you really think the arts can't change it, or was that just a momentary? Not, not in that
1: way. Not in the way that they're often expected to. And I, you know, maybe I get this. Maybe I get. I cop a bit of this because um, because I am framed as a climate theater maker, mm. but a lot of the time people are like, so you know, how is your work changing the world? How is your work fixing the problem? How is your work making it better? How is your work changing people's minds? Mm. And I don't think it can do any of those things. I don't think that's what I think that's late. I think that's loading too much on it. And when when I've tried to make work like that, as I've said, I think I failed, and I think it hasn't been. I think it hasn't been great art. I think it hasn't been fun. It hasn't been open. It hasn't been complex and contradictory in the way that I want my art to be. It's been strident and and telling people what to do or think. It's funny because I do like you know even my, when I'm when I'm kind of even the best work that I make has a quality of being a little like um, it has lectures in it. But often at, at my best, I'm kind of writing multiple contradictory lectures that are arguing with themselves in a way. <laughs> But that's the sort of shit that I enjoy. So I kind of, I'll give myself a pass on that. But <laughs> um, no, I don't think art can change minds in that way. I think everything that you've just said, though, that it can and should do, um, I agree with. It's, uh, but probably what I would, what I would hope for from art about the environment and about, about climate and about ecology is that it's a space, uh, art is a place, it's a gathering place. I mean, theatre particularly is a, is a place where you're gathered with a group of people live in a room to sit with something to sit with something that's maybe bigger and harder and more, more intense than you would want to sit with by yourself. I think being in a room with 50 or hundred other people for an hour, you can collectively process something that if you sat on your own scrolling in your phone in the dark, um, reading newspaper articles about it would feel pretty uh, horrific but even this, for me, there's something about being in a room with a group of people and acknowledging like, here's the thing that we're all feeling. We all feel helpless. We all feel that shared helplessness. Um, let's just be together in that. That's, um, at its best too, I think art can, can slow down and fragment some of the, um, some of the thinking that we're using and just allow us to see and sense how we're processing these, um, these real world issues and, uh, and by kind of, letting us see that it can kind of let us step outside those processes for a moment and kind of reflect on them. That's a, yeah. uh, and that's, that's a lot. Like, I think that's actually a huge amount. Um, it doesn't, what it's not going to do is it's not going to change people's votes. It's not going to um, it's not going to shift the dial on people's spending habits. It's not going to kind of you, there's no artwork that's going to be measurable in like opinion polls the like about voting preferences the week afterwards. I don't believe that, and that's the that's the measure we try and apply to art. There's very utilitarian socio political lens that we look at art through, which I think it fails. That I think it's a I think it's a bad I think it's a, a a bad thing to do to art, and it's a bad thing to do to artists, or at least it's it's been a bad thing to do to me. To, to, mm.
0: um, well, yeah, asking you know, asking someone how, how is your work changing minds? It's kind of like well, I don't know. I'm not asking people when they walk out the door, like, have you changed your mind yet?
1: And literally, a lot of the time, you know, for funding bodies and for someone, they will say, "Well, how are you following this up?" And you know, what's the what's the kind of method that you've got to to survey people or etc. There's mm. there's there's a place for that kind of work. I don't think it's in, I don't think it's in my theatre. I don't think it's in the sort of work that I'm creating because I'm obsessed and fascinated by this topic, right? Like I'm I'm so curious about it. We're living in this extraordinary like unique moment in the history of the planet. Like no at no point in the whole four and a half billion years since the Earth has formed has there been a moment where one species has been responsible for more than like half of the biosphere's energy flow passing through it. That's Mm. this incredible kind of tipping point on so many on so many levels and and the, the world is changing and attitudes are changing and our attitude to climate is drastically shifting, you know, on a day by day or week by week basis, nothing's changing. And yet if we look globally at what's happened in the last 10 years, the dial has shifted hugely. I mean, I think, you know, the Greta Thunberg and the school strikes and extinction rebellion that emerged about two years ago. And that's, you know, in those two years that's already driven a huge push of, for kind of um, a political shift. Things are changing fast, not fast enough, but, we're in this incredible moment, and I'm just so I, I'm I'm delighted to get to talk about it, and to get to write about it, and to think about it, and to share how fucking weird it feels to be in this moment. Yeah, what's it like to be a human being alive at this point in history? Because no one's ever felt the things that we're feeling. Um, yeah, and that's a mix of euphoric and absolutely terrifying, and anxiety-ridden, and also joyful. Well, that's yeah. what I want to write about.
0: Issues like climate change, like it is quite, it's quite dense and philosophical because. In one, you're not just trying to process facts and figures, you're also trying to process the concept of like mortality and like you're saying, like mass extinction of things that you love. And again, I think that's why it's a difficult topic to engage with constantly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we do. I mean, we don't do ourselves any favours in the way that we frame it. We framed it typically as a scientific problem for many, for, for decades, in a way that sort of has left people feeling if they don't have a scientific background, they don't feel confident to engage with it and god knows i've been in enough kind of conversations or meetings where people it becomes this exchange of talking about climate is basically throwing back and forth bad news stories until you're both too depressed to keep going that's that's the climate conversation as we have it that's one and that's one version of it but the other factor of it is what it feels like to be in this moment and how it feels to be scared and alive and and kind of conscious of the changes that we're going through and the the sense of connectivity that we have Mm. And I don't think previous generations had this awareness that we are all so tightly tied together, as we have, you know, right now in a in a world that shut down in the space of a fortnight over March, a whole planet basically, two thirds of the world's population went into some sort of shutdown in one moment because of this uh, drastic interconnection. This this sort of I mean, we we couldn't be living with the more direct consequences of our relationship with nature when we've got a, a pathogen that emerged from a kind of um, human habitation imposing on bat habitation, imposing on like you know different kind of food chains that hit transport supply chains that kind of just drastically uh, overwhelm healthcare systems. We're kind of in this incredibly tightly connected complex system of human and nature, and and that's left us feel like how that leave you feeling? It's extraordinary. Like it's a really it's an incredible thing to get to process and an incredible thing to write about and think about the it's political like, lens that gets layered over. It is often like the, the least interesting part of it for me. It's important. It's very, and, and God knows like, like there's so much that we can and should be doing politically, but it's always felt like a bit of a dodge to me that to throw it to artists to kind of be in any way spokespeople for that side of things.
0: You just meant like all of, all of that kind of description and of, of everything that it is is so nuanced. Do you ever find it hard to kind of like, I mean, I guess from everything you're telling me, it's not like you come in you come in writing a play with like this like strict objective. So it sounds like you're kind of doing what you enjoy and what you find interesting, which is why it's so engaging and, um, and great. But do you ever find it hard to try and like capture all of that nuance and mash it into like something that is watchable and then also I guess will sell tickets because you do need to get people bums on seats, you know, like people need to come and pay the money.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that is the that is the tricky bit, the, the writing something people wanna come and see. So yeah, and I think this is where writing for theater is a particularly interesting challenge because, or writing for, probably writing for film and writing for theater are, are similar in this way. People who are say nonfiction writers who write books, that's a whole different, there's a whole different space to be kind of creating work the, the amount of what you can say and the depth you can go into, the connections you can draw, the detail you can go into is vastly different. In a theatre show, you can't barrage people with the kind of fine-grained, nuanced scientific reference papers for you know an hour and a half. People will trying to get people to drink from a fire hose. It's too much. <laughs> um, so how do wh- how do you tell this story? What are the what are the sort of the ways into to sharing these ideas? And the image is like connecting the image to the ideas is the job. Like that's the, that's the craft of playwriting. That's the thing that I spend, you know, most of my brain power in a, in a creative space is that process of connecting the fascinating sort of science um, and research that I'm obsessed with to theatrical images that I'm also excited by that resonate with each other. And the thing that I write, like the thing that I'm obsessed with and and love writing, is is genre stuff. It's it's trash fiction genre. So you know, if you if you make it to Forty Four Sex Acts next week, you're going to see like it's a rom com. It's a classic love story um, between two mismatched people who who are you know fla- thrown together by circumstances, and maybe there's a bit of a spark that develops between them. The play has to work at that on that level. It has to be a satisfying piece of genre. Um, it has to be pleasurable and, and unexpected and fun in that way. Or mm. I, I don't want to see it if it's not those things. But it has to also connect to those bigger questions of the world. It has to speak to the world in a way. Yeah, that's what I spend my time doing. I'd love to know. I'd love to know if you think it works in forty-four Sex Acts.
0: <laughs> uh, I will let you know. I just had one final question, which is: How can people keep up to date with your work and you?
1: Best thing to do is. Um, I go to my website which is davidfinig.com uh, david dot com. and um, there's a link there to my newsletter which is probably the the simplest thing and in the in the way that I've been kind of um, connecting people in with what I'm doing in the last little while so I would dive nice. in there if they're interested
0: yeah cool and they, they'll get a newsletter with all your ramblings might be on the might be on the scale of enlightened or annoyed <laughs> each, each month is a new fun adventure <laughs>
1: every month is a journey
0: So that was episode number 10 with David Finnegan, the last episode of The Nature Between Us. How exciting, but also sad. Um, As David said, you can subscribe to his newsletter at his website. Um, I guess this is the part where I tell you to subscribe one final time until season two and follow along on socials at The Nature Between Us podcast on Instagram and that's all there is, actually. I don't have a Twitter. Uh, I don't have a Facebook because who does that anymore? Uh, there's going to be a bit of a gap, obviously, between now and the next ep when the new season launches. But if anyone has any requests or suggestions for topics or anything, you can just DM me at the podcast Instagram and um, I would love to hear from you. Honestly, it would be it would be thrilling to uh, to hear feedback or or really just just anything. Um, I guess that's all from me until until season two. Thanks for listening.